Hi, I'm Sarah May, and I'm the host of your new favorite show, Help Me Be Me. It's a self-help podcast for people who hate self-help. Help Me Be Me is full of practical tools to help you overcome a variety of emotional challenges, delivered in a way that's caring but frank. So if that sounds up your alley, I would invite you to check out Help Me Be Me on the iHeart app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, a podcast against shame. I hope you're well and I think you're going to really find today's chat so interesting. My guest is fascinating and an amazing communicator and in today's episode we touched on something that a lot of you have been asking me to touch upon which is autism and neurodivergence. Now my guest this week is Rick Glassman who is an amazing actor, comedian and the podcast host of Take Your Shoes Off which I highly recommend as the weirdest listen ever. He's incredibly entertaining but this episode is so raw and so thoughtful and what I loved about our conversation, we kind of just jumped straight in talking about how his brain works and how he experiences the world via the lens of autism and what he has learned to change about the way that he lives to make himself more comfortable, but what he's also learning about trying to make other people feel comfortable, but also how much he needs to go out of his way to extend himself to make other people comfortable. Is that our responsibility? What comes out of this chat is massively a sense of, first of all, understanding someone's experience. Because I think we both want to make clear in this episode that this is just one person's experience and maybe things will resonate with you and maybe they won't. Everyone's different. We're all individuals and people with autism or neurodivergence are not a monolith. But one thing I think we can universally agree on from listening to this chat is that so many things that apply to people with autism around how we socially engage and move through this world also apply to people who don't have neurodivergence. There are so many ways in which people deny themselves their true authentic expression or getting what they want or what they need or saying the full truth or being their full selves, showing up with all the parts of themselves rather than what the world finds the most palatable. We discuss something called masking, which when it comes to autism is normally, and Rick explains this better in this chat, but it's kind of presenting the version of yourself that you think someone else would like you to be in spite of however it is you really feel. Now, if we're all being honest, most people do that at some point, especially if you've been socialized as a woman. And so is there something that we could learn from the autistic community as to the fact that there is something to this extraordinary authenticity and way of looking at the world that actually most people resonate with, but society conditions us out of doing so? And is all of that healthy just to be considered quote unquote civilized? I think it's fascinating. And I think he's so cool for talking about a subject that very few people feel brave enough to discuss because they don't want that to become the only thing everyone knows about them. Nobody should ever feel ashamed, but I think some people don't want to be labeled. And he talks also about his own reticence and via the art that he makes and via his podcast and via chats like this, he is working to make other people feel less alone. He's not telling anyone anything definitive about all people with autism. But what he's doing is giving us an insight into his experience and the hopes of making others feel less alone in a way that he probably needed when he was young, in a way that I needed when I was young, in a way that all of us needed. 
So let me know what you think. Let me know if this resonates with you, whether you have neurodivergence or know someone who is neurodivergent or or not. Maybe it resonates with you regardless. I would like to know. I think it gives a lot of food for thought and I'm excited for you to hear it. So I'm going to shut up now and let you just enjoy the excellent Rick Glassman. Rick Glassman, welcome to Iway. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. It's so nice to see you and to. I mean, I've met you before, but we've never had like a full, in-depth conversation. Mm. So this is this is new and it's exciting. It also feels like um, my coffee is about to kick in. It uh-huh. hasn't yet, but I feel I I know I had it. Yeah. And uh, I feel like maybe I'm feeling silly. Okay, good. But we're on a podcast <laughs> to talk about how like how much our emotions weigh. Yeah, great. I feel very ready for that. I feel ready and I feel I feel no, excited no, no, no. for it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I uh, wanted you to come here today because I think you are a really fascinating human being, a fascinating figure within our industry and someone who's found a really enjoyable way to talk about the human spirit with the levity of humor. You know, there are a lot of people who can talk about the problems that they have and they can inject some humor into it, but very few people actually genuinely include vulnerability. And I feel like you not only give out vulnerability, but you encourage it from other people while still being able to have a lovely time. Thank you very much. Uh, I have found that, uh, I'm not speaking of myself, I'm speaking about uh, comedy in particular, that honesty is a superpower. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not always the funniest or the best, but like when in doubt, like if you could just be honest, mm-hmm. like say what you're feeling, then at least people get it, mm-hmm. even if they don't agree with it, like they can empathize with you, they get to know you a little bit. So I have found validation since I was a kid in being honest because I felt rewarded. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm in touch with how I feel and I could express it, then I could connect with people. So vulnerability for me, I recognize a lot of people, vulnerable feels like, oh, you're exposing a wound that could get hurt. But to me, vulnerability feels like what that's the best place to be. But I do remember, I've talked about this on my podcast before, which is a preface I always have to make because I feel like I'm lying if I tell a story that I've told before. Mm-hmm. I remember I was at uh, Disneyland with my mom and her friend and her friend's son, who's my friend too. It's just family friends. Mm-hmm. Two moms, two sons. Moms are the same age. Sons are the same age. I don't know how old I am, but I'm under 10. And I used to obsessively have to tell everything I was thinking all the time. And I remember there was a time where uh, I went to the bathroom and my friend's mom went to the bathroom at the same time. And when I went into the bathroom and I was pulling down my pants to go pee, it wasn't a poop. You have to believe me. Mm-hmm. And I was picturing, I wonder what his mom's doing to pee. And then I pictured her naked. And I'm like, oh, no, I pictured somebody naked. And I went and I told my mom, I said, mom, I have to tell you something. She goes, what? I go, I pictured, I pictured Kathy naked. (laughs) And um, is that okay? And my mom said, first of all, uh, yes, it's okay that you picture her naked. And also... I want you to be able to tell me anything you want. Thank you so much for being scared and feeling like you could come and talk to me. Mm -hmm. But also I want you to know that you're allowed to have any thoughts you want and you don't ever have to share them with somebody. And if you want to share them with me, feel safe and you can, but you don't have to. It's okay to have those things. And that was a big thing for me because I'm allowed to have any thoughts I want. I don't have to share them, but there's still that thing in me where it's like, am I supposed to share this? Mm -hmm. Um, To this very day? 
it's I mean then it was like a real like I need to weigh the pros and cons yeah. now it's just like an emotional <laughs> connection that I, I'm able to like parent myself to not have to share every time I have yeah. to go poop mm-hmm. incidentally I just did mm-hmm. but like but for real like that's a thing like I'll be sitting there I have to poop and then I have to stop myself from saying everybody I have to poop mm-hmm. and nobody cares it's nobody's business mm-hmm. uh, and that's when I found that like doing it as I'm sure most comedians will tell you some version of this but like finding a way of doing it in a in a bit is uh it's gonna be okay as long as you get a laugh Mm-hmm. So the validation of honesty came from like, I'll tell the truth, but I'm going to do it playfully. And then something that I didn't discover until like I was in my 30s, which something I've always heard, but I didn't, I thought they were, everyone was wrong, which was nobody knows if I'm joking or serious. And uh, another thing I've said often on my podcast is I, I never thought that jokes and sincerity were mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm telling, everything I'm telling you is real and I'm doing it in a, in a way that I feel safe. And I know that you're not a comedian, mm-hmm. and but you're still an entertainer, which congratulations. I don't understand how that's a thing. Like, how could people be entertaining if they're not funny? I know that's not the case. I, I know that. Is that your way of telling me that you don't think I'm funny? Not at all. That's okay. No, no, I'm being I'm being serious. I, I, I really like how I with. And also by funny, I don't even mean it actually is funny. I'm, let me change funny with playfulness. Mm-hmm. Without that, I don't know how to do this. Mm-hmm. I, if you're not playing, I'm not, I don't know what to do. Yeah. I think that's fine. That's just your way of communicating. Some people, I, I remember talking to, uh, I was, you know, I used to be an interviewer for uh, musicians and Chris Martin once told me, Chris Martin off of Coldplay, uh, once told me that, you know, as a kid, he didn't know how to communicate his feelings and the only way he knew how to communicate all of his feelings was via songs. Jokes. (laughs) And so we all have our own different ways. Some people are hyper, hyper, hyper serious. I think I sort of exist somewhere floating between the two, but I think the way in which I choose to entertain is just via authenticity. So whatever it is that I'm feeling in its rawest form, I give that and hopefully the part of that that's, I don't know if I'm, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm trying to be entertaining, but I think the part of that that some people find engaging is the fact that they relate to that. Mm-hmm. And so some people relate to me at different times, different moods. It really just depends. But I'm just here being consistently my inconsistent self and people can just kind of opt in and out as to whether or not they resonate. And so that's what I think some people find I guess engaging more so than entertaining. That's the the idea that you don't have to be funny mm-hmm. is the is like the realization I made in my thirties, mm-hmm. which is how exhausting it was for people and me. So I get that's where I that's where I think we started with this, which is how like honesty is a bit of a superpower. Where if you're if you're at least being honest, you don't have to do bits. But as a kid, that's where I felt comfortable being honest. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's one of the it's still one of the most effective ways to be honest. It's the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. And every time I've ever tried to say something, yes, it is. It's it's something that I found every time I try and make a very serious point. I try to inject some sort of tongue in cheek with everything serious I talk about. So part of this honesty and part of your kind of learning curve over the last couple of years, I want to be mindful of the fact that I know that you do not ever want to be the spokesperson for autism. Mm-hmm. What was that quote? I think it's something you've you've said a few times before that if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Yeah, that's which a, is, Dr. Stephen Shore. 
It's an amazing, amazing quote. Yeah. Uh, people have an idea of what autism is based on their either personal experience with people in their lives, mm -hmm. uh, which is usually more uh, a broader experience than those that have just seen Rain Man or mm -hmm. some type of savant or virtuoso. Like a lot of people look at it as people that are, you know, you either want to take to Vegas with you or people that are nonverbal. And it exists in a broader sense than that. And I was diagnosed with autism six years ago. And at first I was very, very excited because it connected a lot of patterns that were seemingly unrelated. Uh, mm -hmm. And as I spoke on it more, um, I noticed some people in my life would be like, yeah, obviously. And then some people are like, you don't have autism. When I started talking about it on stage is when uh, that bothered me, bothered me like a lot because, well, what bothered me was my reaction to feeling the need to explain or sell something to people. Mm. I found that with the exception of mothers of people with autism who would come up to me and love what I would talk about, which is a very niche crowd, mm -hmm. uh, which I thought about doing a special called uh, Killing to Mothers with Autistic Kids. Mm -hmm. But other than that, people would like say, oh, but the autism is this or this or this. And like I was in a position that I put myself in by validating it. But like, well, no, you don't understand because when I was a kid or this or this and like I'm like selling them to believe something that had nothing to do with them that offered me value because... I was able to learn new tools and kind of better understand the way I was, I'm wired. So I stopped talking about it for a very long time until I ended up getting on a TV show uh, called uh, uh, As We See It, which is it's an Amazon Prime show I'm very proud of. Um, we did one season, but then I was on a show with a whole bunch of people with autism, uh, people behind the camera, people on camera, people in the writer's room. And, and I just got more comfortable with the idea of like, oh, everybody is their own version of this. So I do talk about it again. Mm -hmm. But by talking about it, you kind of put yourself in a position where you are like speaking for autism. And I am only speaking from my personal experiences with it. And that's all I really would love to hear from you. And I just wanted to kind of approach it gently to make sure that you feel comfortable today talking about it because I'm I'm interested in your journey with it, especially as someone who was diagnosed later in life. I think that we're now seeing a sort of boom of people finding out later in life that they have some form of neurodivergence. And it has in each individual case, a different, but I think quite extraordinary impact on the way they frame their mental health or their lens of the world. And it's your personal lens shift that I'm interested in, provided you feel comfortable to talk about it. I, I do. I want to speak to the voice of of, um, of what kept me from talking about it in the past mm -hmm. to, um, I guess, to acknowledge their perspective, which is people I know um, have a negative take on people who openly discuss their neurodivergence if they don't suffer from things that are very visible to them. Mm -hmm. It would be the equivalent of, 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 of somebody who has a, a boot on their foot and has crutches parking in a wheelchair spot and like, no, but they, they still could walk. And like that mentality is only, this is my hypothesis, but it only is that way. And even in my analogy, if it's looked at as a disability to say, you don't have it as bad as this person, as if there's bad and good. And there absolutely is. I'm not saying that mm -hmm. some of these obstacles and challenges aren't, they wouldn't be better off if those were, uh, e if these challenges were easier for them. But like, there's, there's this kind of human nature. And I, I, I say this just from a sample of my own childhood or remembering when people got, I remember there was somebody in school who was in a cast and uh, he got so much attention from it. 
And then there was somebody who was like, who cares? I broke my arm. He, I broke my arm last summer. Like, like it was a competition. Mm -hmm. I also acknowledge that some people do try and sell it as an identity in order to try and get sympathy or whatever it might be. But because of the show, as we see it, and because of some of the stuff I talk about on my podcast, I've gotten so many emails and met so many people who not only do they not know much about autism, they have since been diagnosed and it helped them learn not just how to better communicate with other people, but how to help them better communicate with them. I do go back and forth with like, I want to be able to talk about my experiences without being fearful that I am saying things as an excuse for something. I had a doctor, uh, like a general practitioner mm -hmm. doctor. He was my doctor for years. And I ask a lot of questions, always have. Uh, I was getting shoulder surgery. And then I met with him just like, hey, I'm getting sur surgery. I want to tell you. So let's just do a checkup. I started asking him some questions about the shoulder. And he was just like, Ugh. and he just breathed out. And I could tell something was wrong. I was like, it seems like you're upset when I'm in here. And he goes, I'll be honest with you, Rick. Uh, every time I see your name is on the door, I take a deep breath. And this is a doctor, you know? I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm not doing bits. I'm just asking questions. I'm, I didn't like that. I didn't like that. And it made me feel bad. I also didn't like that. Then it made me like not trust my doctor as much. I still ended up going there for uh, over a year because... But wait, I'm sorry. Did he explain why he said that? Yeah, he said, I don't have enough time to answer all your questions. And I said, you, you could defer some of them, but I, you know, I'm looking for peace of mind. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, I got diagnosed with autism a few months later. Mm -hmm. And uh, the next time I went in there, I told him. Mm-hmm. And he goes, that makes so much sense. And he was so nice to me. Mm -hmm. He starts talking to me about the Dodgers. I don't know anything about the Dodgers. But he wanted to like, you know, I Connect. don't know. And, um, and he was nice to me. And I still went there for probably about a year or so. But I, I, never, I never forgot that. But the, the, the observation was he was okay with me if he understood why I was curious. Or at least he thought he understood why I was curious. Oh, he has autism. I'll be nicer. So with that, I noticed one, both a shorthand, which I now tell all doctors that I go to. If I go to a doctor, I tell them beforehand because I'm going to ask a lot of questions. And I'll be honest, um, I don't like this, but it's efficient. I do it. I do it as an excuse. I say, hey, listen, I want you to know this autism is a shorthand for this doctor to understand my obsessions and curiosities. And by the way, there are people with obsessions and curiosities that aren't autistic. There are people with autism who don't obsess over those things, mm -hmm. but just I'm cast in this doctor's mind as not somebody who's trying to take advantage of their time, but, oh, he has autism. And it feels dirty. It feels mm -hmm. like a dirty thing to me. Hi there. I'm Liza Powell O'Brien, and I'm a writer, a reader, and the wife of someone you may have heard of. And I'm here to tell you about the newest season of my podcast for Team Coco, Significant Others. Each week, we tell stories you may not know about a person you probably do, like Benedict Arnold, whose wife Peggy may be the reason he almost succeeded in betraying his country. Look for Significant Others wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.
it's not my place to qualify whether or not that's an excuse or not. But I, it, it really depends on whether or not you allow the diagnosis to, to define you and then you go, well, that's just how I am. Or did you take the diagnosis and go, oh, okay, so my brain works in this sort of way and it's different to how some other people's brains work and this is something that people find easier to deal with rather than not. But do you try to find some sort of a social lubricant or or are you just kind of like, well, this is I'm neurodivergent and so I'm just going to be how it's I am? It's not the latter. So uh, before my diagnosis, and this is a bit hyperbolic, but just just, you know, relatively versus after, I wasn't aware of how I was being received. It wasn't that I didn't care. It was that you didn't know. I, I didn't know. And um, the best way I could explain it is, is like whatever I was thinking and whatever I know, so do you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a bit in human nature. I was talking to a friend of mine last night about this with stuff that's happening in the world, um, Israel, Palestine, mm-hmm. um, college campus is where people are, are, are being interviewed about the genocide of Jews and whether or not that's free speech and the other way around and all of these things and how people are scared of, of, of uh, what they're allowed to say, what they're not. And how are some people not seeing the humanity in it, not just the, 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 the teams of it? Mm-hmm. And what it is, is that uh, for better and for worse, I'm thinking stuff that you're not and that they're not. Mm-hmm. And if I'm thinking something that this person isn't or doesn't comprehend, that doesn't it's not oh they don't get it it takes a lot of time before you decide oh they just don't get it it's more how do they not get it mm-hmm. how are they not seeing what i'm seeing mm-hmm. what, for right or wrong how are they not seeing it to not understand that they think differently if i were to give you directions to get to some place you know san francisco and i tell you the fastest way and you want to go a slower way that doesn't that's not possible but i what i didn't consider was maybe you wanted the scenic route and mm-hmm. it added 2 hours that, that nev- there was no scenic route. That doesn't make sense. I never thought about that. I never knew how I was making people feel. Even if they told me, I thought they were joking or they whatever it was, it was hard to understand. So when I found out that I make people uncomfortable, I do too many jokes or uh, I'm, I'm being awkward and they don't get it. When I found that out and I started to better understand it with my diagnosis, I got into a very, I was very depressed. And I felt in a way that even though I'm 30 something, I'm starting over. I have no idea how people think about me. Um, I do care. When someone would check their watch, I would ask, do you, it, are you want to know the time or is this, are we, we, you could leave. I'm so sorry. I was saying sorry preemptively all the time because I didn't, I still didn't know when I was crossing a line, but I finally knew a line existed. And I cared so much about how other people felt mm-hmm. um, and not in a generous way. Not in a selfish way necessarily, but just because like I want to be liked. Mm-hmm. I want you to like me. I want you to think I'm nice. I want I, you to at I least. I like you. I'm sorry. I get the joke uh, uh, and I'm okay with it. But but then I realized there's nothing I could do to make you like me. Mm-hmm. The, I can't control it. I can't, whether or not, like right now, whether or not you like me or not, whether or not mm-hmm. that was a joke or not, I, I'll never know. Mm-hmm. I, I'll never know. So I might as well just be this thing that I feel is my best version. That being said, I've come out the other end. I think I've come out the other end where I very, very much care what people think. Mm-hmm. I Oh, who cares what they think? Who cares if they think you're funny? Blah, blah, blah. I care so much it, and it matters. It's I just isn't a priority to me. Like 
your opinion of me isn't going to dictate my decision unless I agree with your opinion of me, but I care. So I think when people say like, I don't care what people think, I think there's a line of bravery to that, that I get the sentiment, but I will never believe that. And I also think that's not a healthy thing because I just think that like, if you don't care what people think, then you are either so unaware or so uninvested in your relationships. Mm -hmm. I care very, very much about what people think. Mm -hmm. Um, I just don't know if what they think about me, positive or negative, is right. So when I go on stage and if I get laughs and I don't feel funny, I think they're wrong. Mm -hmm. If I go on stage and I think I'm funny and they're not laughing, I just think I I didn't connect and that's on me, but I'm I'm funny. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not forgetting what the, what, what what it's the okay. thing was i do want to i do want to counter that a little bit Go from ahead. my own personal perspective which is that my i used to feel so concerned with what other people felt and thought that i prioritized that over my own needs and happiness right right now what i've realized is that and this is just for me personally is that i don't invest very much in what all other people think the people that i care deeply for or i you know i have a relationship with i care about everything they feel about the world, about themselves, about their lives, about how I treat them, etc. I really, really care about what some people think, but um, or, or feel. But I think where I'm at is that I no longer allow myself to be dictated by other people's opinions because I have certain opinions about other people and that doesn't have to impact them whatsoever. There's plenty of people who I either dislike or disagree with or think are wrong, etc. And that has no negative impact on their life. And so I've chosen not to let right. it negatively impact me. If other people feel a certain way about me, what I do know, what I feel very conscious of and what I feel very sensitive about is that I want to make sure that I'm never hurting anyone. I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. I take absolutely no pleasure in any of that. So I never want to be the shit part of anyone's day, not even for a moment. But I have I have genuinely grown to lose an appetite for impressing or for being liked by uh, or approved by strangers because they just don't know me. Anyone who knows me, I care. But if you don't know me, it's so impossible for you to have any kind of realistic opinion of me, given yeah, that we don't know one another. Right. And so that's where whenever I'm like, I don't really care what people think. I don't mean all people. I just mean people who don't know me. That's all. So this feels very indulgent, but we're podcasting. It's the two of us. And I like these conversations. So I'm, I want to, I want to, uh, I want to come back at you with the thing about how you don't want to make people uncomfortable, but yeah. as much as I care what people think, because mm-hmm. I want them to, to like me, because of course I want them to like me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also accept that I can't control it. So I want you to like me, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Same goes with the uncomfortable thing. It goes the other way. If I, this idea of me making somebody uncomfortable, I, there are examples. If I if I push you, if I fart on you, if I you know say something that that triggers you, I I I mean that I knew would trigger you. That's one thing. But like making people uncomfortable, that's not my responsibility to not do that. Mm-hmm. My mom, uh, I mean it's Eleanor Roosevelt, but my mom would quote Eleanor Roosevelt all the time, all the time. It's I crazy. Think let's credit your mom for this. Uh, um, yeah, it's like when uh, uh, when in the office when he goes, uh, you you miss all the shots you don't take. Wayne Gretzky, mm-hmm. um, Michael Scott, like Michael Scott was quoting Wayne Gretzky. Uh, but uh, nobody can make you feel inferior without your own consent. And like, 
if somebody, even the language of you made me uncomfortable, I get what the shorthand is, mm -hmm. but what they're saying is they're uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I didn't make you uncomfortable. It's like, um, I'm not intimidating you. You are intimidated. Correct. Right. I do not and will not take responsibility for other people's projections and insecurities. If, however, they have communicated them to me and there is a need or a want for them to help me make them feel safe, mm -hmm. that's a different story. But like in superficial interactions, whether it's me on stage and or meeting somebody and or somebody like you, you who I know a little bit, but I don't know your triggers and these things. And um, just to be clear, I didn't mean make sure I'm not making people uncomfortable in ways I could didn't know they could feel uncomfortable because people are very individually sensitive. Well, what about your posts? I just about, mean about what about your posts that you get backlash on, but it's still something that you very much believe mm -hmm. in and people are uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Do you find a way to navigate? Listen, let me explain what I meant better. So, yes. Yes, I've been learning over the last couple of years that there are ways that I can speak that make people feel less defensive. Right. I have been going on That's and like craft. I have been constantly, constantly working on ways to be more palatable, ways to engage in nonviolent communication. Because I realized that when I just used to say things as plainly as I felt them or I thought them, all I did was, you know, I, I got a lot of attention, I got a lot of applause, but I also put a lot of people's backs up and they were the very people I most wanted to be able to reach out across to because they were the people in power who were causing the other people pain. And instead, I just isolated myself from them. I alienated them. And I felt very, very foolish once I understood that. And so now I have been really trying to work on my tone and, and registering that I don't learn when I'm being shouted at or shamed or, you know, belittled in any way because my my brain neurologically goes into fight or flight. My The blood rushes from my brain to my muscles when I feel like I'm being attacked. So then I'm no longer able to comprehend or remember or engage uh, and learn. And so if that's how I feel, then how can I try to explain something to someone else about my experience or the experience of people like me or the experience of a group? When I'm making them feel defensive, I should, if I learn best with grace and tolerance, then that's what I should be extending. So I am getting less and less and less backlash, even though I'm speaking about the same things than I've ever had before, because I have learned via feedback, via, via global feedback, mm -hmm. uh, that I, um, yeah, yeah. Right, a I lot was of people. globally piled on, um, no big deal. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, it, it's, it's like a main goal in my life now is to learn how to communicate about uncomfortable subjects in a way that doesn't make people feel uncomfortable. Uh, and that is what I think of as the craft of communication, which is, in order to do that, you have to care about what other people think, but not prioritize it to the point where you don't find a way to say yes. what you want. And yeah. that is a great example of why I don't want to, not that I, sh um, this is a right decision, just mine, open up to a director of, hey, I need to be spoken to this way because of autism. Because I am aware that when you tell somebody that, in whatever my intention may be, it is an excuse. And I don't mean an excuse as an excusing so it's okay in a bad way. The literal excuse, here is the reason why. And I don't know that it's because of autism. I don't know that I need to be spoken this way because of autism. I know that if I say autism, it'll be a shorthand mm -hmm. and the doctor will be nicer to me. But that's, that's, the, it wasn't my fault that the doctor didn't know I had autism. If I told him, he would have been, oh, you should have told me earlier. I would have known. Mm -hmm. That's not my responsibility. So I don't want to tell a director, I need to be spoken to because of this. Because also then what happens to the next person he meets that has autism and thinks that that's what it means? 
Also, autism isn't the reason I am what I am. Autism is just it's just a category that has a lot of character traits that that you could put it in so it's more palatable for other people to understand. And that serves a great that that's great when educating people. But I don't want to go on a set and educate you on autism. I also believe that my neuro uh, typical friends would also benefit from more direct communication. And we, we people, uh, at least the communities that I've been involved with, have subscribed to forms of communication that they never voted for and that they only do because they were taught. I'm a Jewish Democrat because my parents were. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I mean, that's not true. I care about some things. But like, I, if if people were born without religion and political affiliations, most people probably wouldn't choose one. I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. And I say that from the most aware space. I don't know anything. I just know what team I grew up with. And that goes in social communications with people saying, how you doing? How's your family? Shaking hands, making eye contact, f- f- having certain types of posture, opening the car door for somebody, bringing a bottle of wine when you visit their house, all of these things that you're supposed to do. People, I don't think, care enough. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come back to this in a second. I have a, a when Vine came out, mm-hmm. you remember Vine, right? Mm-hmm. That's not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Six second comedy. And that's also when people started going viral. It kind of defined a new, a new form of comedy, both a short, short form. And a lot of people got this huge stage before they developed their craft. Mm-hmm. And it kind of conditioned what comedy is. Now I'm being a, a biased because I'm in comedy, but I think short form content like that has conditioned younger generations what funny is and now funny is not what it's not earned to me enough like funny by funny it's not even funny it's just entertainment just like people opening boxes and people america's funniest videos being people falling down stairs i guess could be funny if the person isn't hurt i don't know but there isn't a craft that people had to develop to get this stage Mm -hmm. There's good versions of this too and what is done, blah, 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 blah. But because they haven't had to develop that craft, it doesn't exist. I think that happens in social interactions. I think if more people were very direct, they didn't ask things they weren't interested in, they told their opinions, it has nothing to do with autism. I think people would be conditioned to be more comfortable showing up authentically. And that's not autism. I know that my friends without autism are very direct with me. Mm-hmm. That's just because I've asked them to be. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I completely agree with you. I think about this all the time. I also think about it, you know, when we um, talk about masking, right? And mm-hmm. masking is, I guess, how, how would you how would you describe masking? Um, putting on uh, uh, an energy or a personality or a face uh, that you feel that uh, other people to make other people more comfortable with you. Mm-hmm. Now, don't don't you feel? I feel. Do you also feel that? Everyone is doing that to some extent. Yes. It's something that we identify with only. Yeah, sorry. Most people. Um, there are, we associate it heavily with autism, but it's something that I find almost everyone that I know, you know, especially being in this industry, mm-hmm. does. Like we, we put on a more palatable and quote unquote civilized persona in order to be accepted because we have a tribal fear, like an anthropological fear of being ousted from the tribe, right? So we do whatever. You see a lot of it on social media with the way that people talk about social politics or social justice. They, they are, they're very tribal in their their statements, their sentiments, their affiliations. And 
then you meet those people maybe offline and suddenly they have a different mm -hmm. take versus, you know, who they project themselves as an authority publicly. for women. I could speak that women, um, a lot of women feel the need to do that. Mm -hmm. A lot of women like I need to show up in a way that is non-threatening and mm -hmm. or uh, sexualized and or not sexualized mm -hmm. and or whatever it is that I feel that I'm supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely not an autism thing. No, 100%. And the reason that autism is harder to diagnose or it's it's less diagnosed in women until later in life is because partially because women are so hyper socialized mm -hmm. excessively uh, more so than other genders. Uh, They're taught to how to be, mask Yeah, to be palatable. So kids, so little girls growing up or anyone socialized as female, they are all growing up with some sort of a mask of, you know, smile and, you know, be pleasant, et cetera, just as you were kind of um, referring to as a wonderful authority on women. Mm -hmm. um, but you. I, but it is something that I feel like the conversation about neurodivergence and autism and masking and all of that, like there's, we should not look at that as like a closed subject that like that's just for autistic people over there. This is a subject that I think opens Pandora's box of our society at large as to all the conversations that we aren't having, as to all the like straightforward conversations that would make the world move much faster. Like we aren't telling each other the full truth. And we are we are now engaging in a culture because of social media that means that it's this really strange combination where social media encourages you to be your most raw, oversharing self. You have to give everything of your personal life, but at the same time, it has to be curated somewhat yeah. to be palatable to absolutely everybody. And yeah. so it's this clusterfuck that I'm so glad that I didn't form my brain as a teenager in because this is just... It's just so overwhelming. And I think this conversation about masking and autism is is one that everyone can take from of, am I being my most genuine self? Is this how I feel today? Would my life be easier if I could engage in straightforward conversations and ask others yes. to engage the more straightforwardly with yes, me? Yes. No matter who you are. Mm -hmm. uh, and if the reason it's no is because of the people that don't allow that, then the issue is that you need to change your circle. Yeah. When people are masking, it's there's a consciousness to it oftentimes I'm doing this because maybe you don't check in with yourself, but if you did, the answer wouldn't necessarily be buried so deep. Oh, I want these people to think this version of me. And that's my choice. When you don't know mm -hmm. how the other person receiving, when you go in and you smile, you're aware that you will be more liked if you're smiled or you will be more whatever if you are smiling more. Mm -hmm. But there are, speaking for myself, I have no idea so I'm not doing what I've learned works because I've been validated in it. I'm doing what I have seen other people do and I'm just gambling. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think I'm supposed to do this. It's not as conscious. It's not as strategic. There are two, there are so many variables. Not Wait. being able to pick up, pick up on social cues is, mm. is a big difference. Is a big difference. Like I talk about this in my act now, but like right now your head is to the side and you're making good eye contact. Some people, when they squint and they lean forward, I know that's showing that you're interested, but I also know, are you just trying to show me that you're interested? I don't know if you are. Mm -hmm. There's so much to calculate and it gets so exhausting. Mm -hmm. It gets so exhausting. And then you ask people, were you really interested in this? 
I, I don't know if they even know their feelings enough, let alone if they'll tell me the truth. The reason I was um, squinting and looking at you pleasantly is because I was having a memory of the last time I saw you perform live. And to this point, you said something that made me laugh a lot. And I remembered and uh, it made a lot of my friends who are also autistic feel very seen where you were talking about the kind of social contract. And, you know, when you meet someone, you have to be like, hi, hi, nice to meet you. Yeah. How are you? I'm you not going to try and do your bit to you. Yeah. You have I'm to gonna... be really, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're really like, oh, that's awesome hi yeah and yeah. i live here and oh you live there that's yeah. so interesting whereas really all you want to say is hi hi I, well i think it was what you said on stage oh, no, it was, it was like it, it's like someone's like hi my name's mike okay yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> or when people say how you doing like the most honest most of the time the most honest thing is i don't want to tell you yeah like i don't it doesn't it doesn't matter yeah i don't want to tell you yeah but that's the craft though that's the craft of like how could you show up authentically without negating other people's forms of communication and that's where i that's where the funny, at least for my version of mm -hmm. it, comes from like, if you can make a joke out of it, then you get to tell somebody the truth without them feeling attacked. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's being playful. Mm -hmm. But then it's like, well, how do they know that I'm also being serious? And I don't know if this is true, but my, uh, my therapist once told me, and out of this context, but we project onto other people. We don't really know somebody. I mean, of course, this is arbitrary, but it takes two years to know somebody. Like you don't really know somebody until you've known them for two years. I guess it depends on how often you see them day to day. Mm -hmm. But like something that I, I have a trouble accepting because I like I want to find the cheat, which I haven't yet. But like I want to just like meet somebody and just say like, let's just stare at each other for five seconds. Okay, you get it, right? You know everything I'm saying. You understand me? Mm -hmm. All right, do I just, just trust me? Just believe me. Mm -hmm. And then same, but... People have their own traumas with trust and and if people are being authentic and what people's wants are. And also some people are trying to take advantage of certain situations. And it's just so hard to trust people and to know what their intentions are. I don't believe that most people know their own intentions. I don't think that many people ask themselves, mm -hmm. why did I do this? And it becomes so exhausting that the only thing, that, that's why it's like, if I made you uncomfortable, I don't know if that's my fault. If I made you laugh, May I be a little gratuitous for a moment? Yes. I used to do a bit. It's a sexual bit, mm -hmm. um, which I might still do some version of. But like the, 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 the small version, the inspiration is if you're with a woman and she has an orgasm, mm -hmm. I didn't give that to you. Like the way your body works, you obviously just come from that kind of stuff. I was happy to be there. I'm glad that I could help, but that's the way your body works. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, if you didn't, maybe you don't come penetratively. Like, I don't know. So like, it's not my fault that you did or you didn't. Now that's a very crazy version. Obviously, you know, do some cunt, some cool moves or whatever. I don't know. But like- Did you just say do some cunt? I think I did. Okay. <laughs> I think I did. Yeah, did I did. you mean cunnilingus? Well, I know I did say okay. that. I think that that, that was a, 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 a slip. A clit. But what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, if I make you come or if you don't come, I, I, only so much of that is my responsibility. I think and we're just going to clip that moment. Clip that moment. And tell people that this was us discussing Autism. sex that we've had. No. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> did I make you come? Because if I did, I'm glad, but that's not because of me. But in real life, too, like if I made you happy or if I upset you, only some of that is on me. Yeah. So, I'm just happy to be having sex and, and having a conversation. And we can all just do our best. Let's do our best to try to, you know, learn about someone else's needs and within reason, try to meet them 
half-ish way, and some at, percentage of the way. And in, in this analogy, in real life, if socially you're uncomfortable in certain situations, maybe you need to be carrying around a vibrator. <laughs> okay, because it's not my, only my job to pleasure you. Right. Figure out your body, man. Yeah. So I think before you get into social conversations with people and expect to make friends and get close, you have to learn... You know, they say you have to learn how to touch yourself before you can touch somebody else. You have to learn how to love yourself before you could love somebody else. My name is Rick Glassman, and sometimes I'll make you come, and sometimes I won't. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I don't know if we're done, but I thought that was a We're good. not done. Mm. Um, okay. Commercial ad break there. Hi there. I'm Liza Powell O'Brien, and I'm a writer, a reader, and the wife of someone you may have heard of. And I'm here to tell you about the newest season of my podcast for Team Coco, Significant Others. Each week, we tell stories you may not know about a person you probably do, like Benedict Arnold, whose wife Peggy may be the reason he almost succeeded in betraying his country. Look for Significant Others wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. What was your childhood like? Were you popular or lonely? I, uh, I was never bullied. Mm-hmm. Big and, brag. Uh, Big fucking brag. I was never bullied globally. <laughs> I've been both bullied interpersonally and globally. Whatever. You're a woman. It's easy to get bullied as a woman. Quit bragging. <laughs> um, that's not true. I was bullied uh, one summer at, at, a, at a summer camp. But I didn't grow up. And my brother. <laughs> but like in school, in most social, I was I didn't grow up feeling bullied. I didn't feel unincluded. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a bit where I talk about um, I didn't know I didn't have friends until I I was diagnosed with autism. I just thought everybody was busy all the time. Like people had made I can't I can't this I can't that. Oh sorry, but we only have so much room. And I was like, oh okay. I just believed everybody. Everyone was nice to me, but I didn't really have friends. I had some friends with some weird kids and my mom would always say to me how nice I am. My mom would say, it's so nice. Like these people aren't really included and you're so nice to them. And, and I thought like, yeah, I'm a good guy. And I didn't realize, oh, I'm also one of those. Mm -hmm. I just thought like, look at me playing with, playing with, I almost said his name and I shouldn't because I think that's me. But I remember one kid in particular who would microwave s'mores all the time because his mom didn't want him to be near fire. But like, look at me. Um, Look how nice I am microwaving s'mores with this weirdo. Mm -hmm. I'm one of them. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea. So no, I, I I neither had friends or popularity, nor did I feel. I, that's a luxury of the lack of awareness I had as a kid. I just thought my mom applauded a bowel movement of mine. My mom would ask me to play the piano for people and, oh, you're so great. I thought I was the best. Right. You know? And I'm very happy for you. Same. Yeah. That's same. incredible. That's Be- really fucking amazing. Because it's just a decision. Kind of yeah. And and somebody else has to make it for you when you're a kid until you could do it yourself. So how about now? Are people still fobbing you off and saying they're busy or do you feel like you are less isolated? Like post-diagnosis, what's your social life like now? I have my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my 
friends slash acquaintances. Comedy community is um, is 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 like a fraternity in the best way. But has there been a shift post diagnosis? Like, have you noticed that because people are maybe able to understand you better, do you I've feel no like your behavior has yeah, changed? Yeah, I've, I've noticed and, and been told, uh, or more specifically, I've investigated and found out um, that I would cross people's boundaries. I was on a TV show uh, on NBC called Undateable. I, was, I went and saw it live. I think you told me that, but I forgot why. Because uh, I'm friends with David Finn. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. David is one of the people who even told me what, what I'm telling you, which is uh, I didn't realize I was stepping on people's toes with some of the bits I was doing or during rehearsal. I used to always wear headphones. It was a safety thing. Just you could always, I'm always a button away from not having to listen to certain noises or being able to listen to something that's calming. And I would have headphones in all the time. I wasn't always listening to them. Like right now I have headphones on and you understand it. But imagine if we were outside and these were on, you would maybe be a little, why is he wearing headphones? Mm -hmm. That's a very mild example, but there were things that I was doing or not doing that I guess maybe made people feel I didn't want to be there or made them feel disrespected or mm -hmm. I'm doing too many jokes. I take responsibility for not making my friends come there. But at the same time, <laughs> but at the same time, nobody was telling me to play with their clit. Yeah. Nobody was telling me anything. Yes. And, and uh, I have now... One, learned some of the things not to do. Mm -hmm. I've also learned, like I said, to tell a director, hey, if if you want the, the most efficient out of me in the easiest way, mm -hmm. this is, let me give you some tools. So post-diagnosis, I've, I believe I've been allowing people the space to, for them to feel the most comfortable. But at the same time, it's because I ask them what their needs are. Mm-hmm. Back to this idea of conditioning people to be more direct and um it's a bit like the bdsm community that's what you're like you're a bit like the bdsm community i, I understand that's a sexual thing but i don't know enough about them could you help me with the analogy so something i really like about what i've learned about the bdsm community is that it's all consent based right and yeah. it's all about getting as much information about each other as possible before oh, you sure. engage in an act of intimacy to the point where when on I guess like a dating oh, website that's like they'll in, um, send each other a list of like this is what I'm into this is what I like this is what I don't like they'll wait send really that quick list. what's the grey movie the, the Fifty, 50 Shades, Shades of Grey yeah. I saw that movie the, the guy was like saying is it like that that's what BDSM is I right? haven't seen it oh it's Sorry. hilarious but uh, yeah he's like <laughs> what's okay what's okay how much could I like slap you with this thing or whatever yeah. and like right 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 so okay so so what I love about that is that then you send your list of of yucks and yums to someone else That's and then they send yeah sure and they send theirs back to you and if the two aren't compatible you just decide not to meet up on a fucking day perfect love that shit I bet the BDSM community is full of neurodivergent people because they must feel so fucking safe and happy with the clear love yeah like it's ideal and but you think about the fact that's a, that that's a sexual intimacy that's in any relationship that's what i'm saying yeah. is that like that's what it reminds me of is that you are asking someone and i do the same thing by the way i ask people now i know to ask people for their boundary so that i don't cross it i do a pre-interview mm -hmm. for every podcast I remember to, to ask someone and you hated boundaries. it you hated i didn't hate it i was <laughs> no. I, no i was I, I tell you the truth i was like I, I look i understand what you're asking all of these things are okay i would rather be yeah. able to no, do no, it no, organically no, I know. but you can see where i'm coming from from, which is that I'm trying to learn a bit from the BDSM community um, that I'm not a part of because I'm very uh, pain averse um, and I've already had enough humiliation in my life. Um, but uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's fine. It's globally bullied. Uh, 
I, I've learned from, I guess, like that and ways in which I've upset people in the past unknowingly to now try to learn people's boundaries and then meet them where they're at and, and explain mine to other people. And I've just had so much more of a peaceful life since doing that. But that was just, you just reminded me of that as to like the fact that within that community, there are so much less people crossing each other's boundaries, less trauma, less um, falling out because they're able to- I would argue more to, trauma, but- Well, <laughs> it's not trauma if you, I, I did, however they choose to frame that trauma, but, I, but it's a happier dating space than the other one of just like this fucking weird guesswork over intimacy of like I'm just gonna do it and see how you respond so I have a hypothesis about that go on so um what BDSM does they will ask uncomfortable questions mm -hmm. and tell you uncomfortable truths about themselves because they're not afraid of being uncomfortable mm -hmm. that's what I like I want people to tell me hey Rick I don't like when you do this mm -hmm. but people don't do that mm -hmm. and that's masking 100% so can I ask you something about, given that this is a mental health podcast, have you found that the autism diagnosis had made any shift in how you feel in the world? Like, did it increase you? I know at first made you feel a bit depressed, but now that you've kind of learned to understand it, understand yourself, like work to find ways to communicate better with other people, have you found there to be uh, an improvement in the yeah. way that you feel, like less anxiety, less depression, etc., uh, or is it is it better or worse? Well, first, uh, when I got the diagnosis, it didn't make me depressed. It made me so excited. Oh, this makes sense. The depression came from me um, communicating it to people, right? Uh, and then uh, realizing, oh, this is that's also don't use it as an excuse for anything. This is a journey just to better understand my wiring. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it has helped with my anxiety. Okay. Um, and uh, I get uh, anxiety is a big one for me. Um, it has not helped with my OCD. My OCD has gotten better. And if that's something we have time or interest, we could talk about. But I'd love that's, to. But um, where it has helped is uh, it's helped me better understand uh, my triggers. Um, and by understanding them, uh, I'm able to respond differently. Um, for ex like example, like when people are drunk, it, they're not going to not be drunk anymore. You have to, the, the alcohol's in your body. Mm -hmm. But if you're aware that you're drunk, you could choose not to drive. And if the room is spinning, you're not going to panic. You know, like, oh, this is because I'm drunk. Like, mm -hmm. you know why you are this way. When I have my obstacles, having the diagnosis hasn't necessarily made those better, but it has made me be able to tap in and like talk to myself. Rick, this is what happens when X, Y, Z. Don't go out. Or um, take a walk, or you know, eat something. Self soothe. Yeah, uh, self learning how not only how to self soothe, but when it's necessary is mm -hmm. is 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 huge. Do you find some some of the people that I know who were diagnosed, especially late in life, have found that they've learned cert certain situations that they can't very easily navigate themselves their mm -hmm. way around, and so they've just stopped putting themselves in certain situations. Not all situations. I don't think it's ever ideal. Like Maisie Hill was on this podcast, and she's she has autism, and she, you know, she's she's a big advocate for not allowing. You know, like if she has a big problem with the wind, it doesn't mean never going outside on a windy day with her children. It's just finding ways to cope. But um, but. I I do find that some people, therefore, once they understand what their triggers are, um, put themselves in less positions of that anxiety right. and that helps reduce the amount of anxiety. So do you feel as though you've done that? Have you learned the situations that you need to yeah, extricate yourself I gave some from? examples too. I've also done quite the, I've done the opposite sometimes too. I've started to do it. Like um, aversion therapy? 
exactly like virtual reality. That's that's it's been connected to, and helpful for my OCD. Right. Um, and some things I've accepted that I can't, and I try and use the language of myself of I can't yet, but not that I can't because I don't want to get stuck in the yeah. things I can't do. But uh, a silly example is uh, is clothes. There are certain uh, I wear pants sometimes. Even these, I mean, they're elastic. Mm-hmm. Um, certain clothes I, I I in certain moments I can't wear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's sometimes where I have to go to a thing that requires these clothes. What kind of clothes? Pants. Any pants. Pants that aren't elastic. Right. Um, or a dress shirt. Oh, the material of dress shirts. Mm-hmm. Fucking horrible. The material, also the buttons. Makes my teeth feel funny just thinking about it. Yeah. I really hate velvet. I can't wear velvet. I can't be in a room with velvet very easily. Yeah, I can't I touch that. someone if they're wearing it. Yeah. It makes me really want to like... I would love to not go on with more examples Sorry. of this. Okay. And I, I understand. No. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a, it's visceral. No, I actually, I'm not enjoying it. Yeah, so, that's so we'll move on. Um, but sometimes you have to wear this thing to this thing because otherwise the person, the people of the event might feel disrespect. Yeah. So in those moments where I feel like I have to, I've made the commitment or something needs something. When you first said pants, I thought you meant you wanted to be able to go to that event, just pantless. No, uh, sweatpants. Okay, that's fine. Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to give a, a free plug to a brand that I'm wearing right now that uh, okay. that uh, sponsored my podcast. Um, that's the only reason I know about them. It's called Marine Layer. Okay. And these pants that are corduroy pants and they look and they feel like pants, inside are sweatpants. And they're just like, I know these things have existed before. They're called joggers. But pants like that, they don't go by waist size. They go by small, medium, large, extra large. Mm-hmm. And the size that fits my waist is are always too short. And I can never wear them. And like I wear these all the time now. Great. They're just sweatpants, but they look like pants. So that's a little bit of a cheat. Mm-hmm. But I didn't. I used to not go to things. I, I wouldn't go to events. I wouldn't go to. I mean, I went so long without not leaving my house. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do anything. Um, and then when I got the diagnosis, and I learned that oh, it's. I know I'm sensitive to textures and feelings. That I didn't realize that's what it was. Oh, I don't like pants. Like I didn't know that. Mm. So knowing that now. I'll tell people like when they invite me to something, uh, I say up top, could I wear sweatpants to it? And almost always, with the exception of one time somebody wanted to take me to the theater, they say, yeah, that's fine. And then you get to, so I've learned how to set expectations of I'm going to wear bad, bad, bad clothes to this thing. Mm-hmm. And also there are things that like if people want me to go to a wedding that I have to get on a plane for um, and I don't want to because I don't like traveling much, I'll say no. So before the diagnosis, it would maybe be like, oh, I have to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And now I've accepted. I mean, that's not the best example, but. but has that helped you? Mm-hmm. Great. So in that way, men, then perhaps there's uh, less frequency, hopefully, of the anxiety. No. No. Okay. No, it's less frequency of the anxiety caused by obligation. Right. But the anxiety, the most of it isn't based on obligation. Do you know what causes your anxiety? I don't know. I, I I have to imagine at least in part it's chemical. Mm-hmm. I know that things exacerbate it. Am I saying that word right? Exacerbate. Exacerbate it. I know that when I'm anxious, I need that self-soothing thing that you had brought up. Um, that becomes a priority. Um, and I also know that if I say yes to something, that I I I will do it. I've committed to something, so I do it. Um, and I also get afraid that what happens if I'm in, a, I'll just call it an anxious state. Like if we commit to doing a podcast and then if I'm really anxious, 
So I, 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 for a long time, I wouldn't make any commitments, not because I don't like doing stuff, but I was scared that what happens if that day I'm in a moment. Um, so now what do you do? Now I, I do it anyway. That's the aver uh, what's aver aversion therapy. Yeah, that's where I do it. That's where I put it in my calendar and I know that I have to do it. Mm -hmm. If something comes up, obviously, but I aversion therapy, by the way, just for anyone who's never heard of that before is where you, um, let's say, for example, with me, I um, have a like pathological terror of um, bees and wasps uh, to the point where for several summers of my youth, I didn't go outside uh, for almost six months of every year <laughs> and missed a lot of school and I wouldn't have any windows open even though we don't have any air conditioning in England and so I would just sit here sit there sort of like sweating to death because I was so afraid a bee could come into the room so I was taken by a cognitive behavioral therapist and you put your head in a beehive a, put put me in a bush that had bees <laughs> in it and made my um I will say that that particular therapist I think took it too far and I became much more afraid of bees but after in theory. that. But normally when it's done by someone who is yeah, careful and good, uh, you know, then then it can really help you see that you do the thing that you're most afraid of and nothing terrible happens. And that becomes part of the therapy of like, mm -hmm. okay, because the big fear is something absolutely horrific is going to happen. And so having that disproved in front of you can be incredibly um, helpful. I got chased by the bees. So everything backfired very badly right. for me. That kind of it's not going to happen fear. to you. I think she's not still practicing cognitive mm -hmm. pain i hope anyway but yeah yeah it's just explaining doing it. doing the thing that you're afraid of <laughs> if you're afraid of it if there's a, a logical reason to be afraid of it yeah. then maybe that serves a purpose but if it's just an, a, an emotional trigger um to show oh it wasn't that bad and that's how i feel about pants too like i'll put on pants and i'll have a thing for a few minutes and i, and I can't wait to take them off but it's like oh this is okay Mm -hmm. um, my boyfriend says that I'm uh, very unfriendly when I'm wearing a tight dress or if I am wearing makeup, yeah. like eye makeup, mascara. He was like, you become like a frosty, different person. There are certain um, certain things I wear or certain things on my skin. If I'm wearing foundation on my skin, I just feel like I feel crusty and I feel angry and I feel unfriendly. And I become very short with everyone. So now I just don't. I've now just become a lot more careful about when and where I do that and how I do it. And why do it? And at I all? think that we should all be doing that. And I don't think you should need any kind of diagnosis to have the permission to live more comfortably. I think a lot of people out there are putting themselves through and, and I say this especially for women the amount of fucking uncomfortable shit that we do to ourselves we a lot of us aren't eating enough or we're over exercising or we're not sleeping enough because we're getting up fucking early to do all this shit to look a certain way to meet a certain bullshit fucking beauty standard it's like there's so many things that we are wearing or doing like heels I can't believe oh, I wore I stilettos I cannot I believe I think it's the silliest thing it's the great it's once you see it you can't unsee it you're like I I've thrown away about, I think, 15 pairs of shoes or given them away. Um, but now I've just passed that discomfort on to someone else. Uh, why the fuck Some women was say I... they like wearing them. I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I No, I mean, it's just... I don't know if listen, I don't get it. I like a platform. It makes it more comfortable for my ankles. I really enjoy that. And I also really like being fucking gigantic. I love being like King Kong level mm. tall compared to everyone else it makes me feel safe you need bigger platforms I love, yeah so i enjoy i enjoy that but when it comes to balancing on a fucking tiny needle my entire massive body what the fuck was i doing it's so strange that when i was talking about being uncomfortable that's what i was saying with your people do things and they're uncomfortable so other people aren't uncomfortable mm. and i'm saying let the other person be uncomfortable mm-hmm 
Yeah. Don't, don't do the thing you don't want to do. Don't wear the thing you don't want to wear. Yeah. Let them be uncomfortable yeah. because they got to figure out how to make themselves comfortable. Yeah. And to, it's a whole social infrastructure of that. Mm -hmm. So much of, again, like just pulling this to women because you're an authority on women. So I feel like we can just like really love. I think you're this. making a joke, but I really am. I've talked to a lot of women and I've listened and I'm a big advocate for women and their orgasms. And I could tell mm -hmm. you firsthand mm -hmm. that, or first ask me, I don't know what you're going to say. <laughs> I don't even remember what I was going to say now because I'm thinking about what a great authority you are. I think you were going to say that women are important and they need to exist. No, I was going to say that. Anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that I think that so much of what's going on with women is that we are now starting to unpack that it's okay to sometimes make other people uncomfortable if that if the way in which we're doing that is just to be ourselves. It's mm -hmm. like maybe I feel authoritative about this thing or I feel passionately about this thing or I want to advocate for myself that creates discomfort I completely agree with what you're saying and I think that that's that's a place that we can apply that socially mm -hmm. I think it's very helpful yeah but the aversion immersion whatever it's called aversion immersion can't be aversion because it's you're not adverse of it aversion therapy aversion um man that's a real thing yeah do a thing two times and it becomes easier. What's the best example of that that you've experienced? Uh, when COVID came back, my OCD went back to how it was when I was a kid. Bad. When COVID came back? When COVID came. Sorry. Uh, when my OCD came. Yeah, because my, my OCD came back to how it was when I was a kid, but when, when COVID came. Uh, and then when it calmed down a lot and people are living their lives, I still wasn't leaving. When I finally started doing stand-up again, wearing a mask, walking up to the stage, wiping down the microphone before doing my act, I was forced to open up with my OCD and talk about my OCD because I needed to acknowledge this, this theatrics I was doing with changing the microphone and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I didn't want to have to open my act talking about OCD. And the only way to not do that was to not bring up the thing. So I decided to just go up, touch the microphone, and then go have a panic attack in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. um, and I went up and I grabbed the microphone and I just was fine. And uh, the next time I, I didn't wipe down microphones anymore. I went from not doing it or only doing it if I could do this thing. And by the way, in order to do it, uh, I didn't want the, I didn't want to leave my container of wipes. So I'd have to bring the container of wipes up. So I'm bringing up a container of, I, I'm bringing wipes to every show. It was just such a burden. Um, and just doing it one time, I realized uh, I'm still, I, even still, I'm uncomfortable doing it. Touching a microphone. And then sometimes your lip touches it and it's fucking gross. Mm -hmm. But like, also, that's just an emotional response. Mm -hmm. uh, pants. I wear pants now when I wouldn't. Still not often. Mm -hmm. I make commitments to things, um, even though I don't didn't want to. Mm -hmm. uh, because. Thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. um, but those are things where it's like, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to. Rick, I know you don't want to, and you're allowed to not want to. Just do the, just do it. Just put it in the calendar because then it's done. The decision is made. Mm -hmm. I guess uh, making decisions, I couldn't do. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess those are th th those are examples. Is there anything like that you want anyone to know who maybe has themselves been recently diagnosed with autism? Because there's a lot of people suddenly. I actually have an answer, and it's very, very important. Okay. Um, make sure to watch or listen to the Take Your Shoes Off podcast. Such it changes cunt. people's lives. Was that a Freudian slip as well? Did you mean to say clip? Uh, no. I... Um, <laughs> well, learn about it. Um, get a book. There's okay. a book I can't remember, but we'll have it in the show notes mm -hmm. um, that I read from a, uh, a father of a son who was diagnosed with autism. And it wasn't until his son was diagnosed that he was too. Uh, 
that was just the first book I read. So maybe there's other great ones. I'm sure there are, but that was the one that had the biggest impact. Um, but it, th- that's where it taught me the need to, in relationships where I could teach other people how to communicate with me and ask them for the same, that one. And, uh, and being okay that uh, some people aren't going to be able to make you feel safe because, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling this is very, very corny. I'm also feeling a little emotional about it. Um, it also feels like something you would just see on, on a TikTok post. But safety, as an adult at least, will not come from anybody but yourself. And in some of my relationships, when I was first diagnosed, I was looking for people to make me feel safe by telling them my needs. And that's nice if people could help facilitate those things but that puts a big burden on other people. And this is what's corny, but I mean it 100%. The way I realized, I feel very, I feel safe now. I get anxious all the time and my OCD sometimes gets very bad. I feel safe. Um, and uh, it's because I've accepted what I am. This is, I know, I, I, I'm feeling embarrassed saying this. You have nothing to be embarrassed about and I'm really enjoying it. Um, I'm very lucky to have had parents that instilled that in me at a young age. So I'm, uh, despite any obstacles I have, I was given a great head start for it. But like, I really, really love who I am. And um, I think I'm this, I think I'm so funny. I think I'm so nice. I think I'm good at the piano. I think that uh, I'm smart. And all of these things, as I say out loud, I, these are literally things my mom had said to me as a kid. So I know it's coming from that. But as an adult, I didn't always feel that way. And I made a decision to like myself. I know that's corny. And I know that doesn't, that's not, that's like affirmations in a mirror. I just, which is like, I am beautiful. I am kind. Like, I don't know how that, I don't, that wouldn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I just really like love who I am. And because of that, I feel, and I'm sure I'm wrong a lot of the time, but I feel like the decisions I make are okay. Um, the things I say to people are okay. The jokes I make are okay. But on the opposite end, if, if you're so unaware, you might just love yourself and you suck. So I don't know. After I got so depressed telling people and trying to explain to people the autism and when I was almost as if I was saying this is who I am, which is why I'm so averse to it now, I realized there's nothing I could say to people to make them see me. Mm-hmm. So it just was a burden from needing people to see me. And how do you feel today after having discussed it at length? Okay. Good. I I think you asked because in the pre-interview, I told you I don't always want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't like talking about it for the reasons I I was able to say. I I, I don't want to make any excuses. I don't want to make any definitions. But this was framed in a way of me just telling you my personal experiences, most of which has nothing to do with autism. Maybe it's connected here and there. and I think also created a a bridge between neurodiverse and neurotypical people and the fact that there are so many similarities between the way that all of us are being mm-hmm. conditioned and that we can all take something from this and from these experiences and not have to pathologize or to categorize what are sometimes just the our, our fucking needs. Yeah. Let me give you a, a less corny answer then for advice about the needs thing. Learn what your boundaries are and communicate them to people. Mm-hmm. I think that's a more efficient thing. It's a love. They're both lovely answers. I really appreciate you coming today. Uh, I love how unstructured 
this conversation was normally this podcast is far more kind of like we have a beginning, a middle, and an end. But right, it was well, so, it's autism. It was so, it's because of autism. No, <laughs> but it was today was um it was just a very raw conversation in which I really felt like I got an understanding of you and I, I think the audience will too and hopefully from that take on a further understanding of themselves you are autistic people are not a monolith you are not a spokesperson for them but just you as a human human to human giving me such a, an in-depth insight into your personal lens has been really cool and thank you so much for coming today thanks for wanting to have me on the pod Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Aaron Finnegan, Kimmy Gregory, and Amelia Chapelo. And the beautiful music that you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's such a great way to show your support and helps me out massively. And lastly, at I Weigh, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. Please email us a voice recording sharing what you weigh at iweighpodcast at gmail.com. And now we would love to pass the mic to one of our listeners. Highway being independent. Highway being a kind person and a friend. Highway overcoming personal trauma. Highway a good and healthy and romantic relationship. And lastly, highway being who I am. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week, you know, as you're bottling things up, because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel, you know, you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy regardless of whether they think they need it because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iway today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iway.